Hey, before we start this episode, just want to remind you that the Fearless Woman's Guide to Starting a Business is available everywhere that you like to buy books, and you can get it in paperback, Kindle, and even as an audiobook. I'll have links on where you can purchase in the podcast notes. Okay, back onto the show. You are listening to One Broken Mom, a podcast dedicated to raising awareness about mental health, parenting, and self-improvement. I'm the host, Ami Quirconi. One Broken Mom is not a family show. It is intended for adults only and may contain adult language. Sometimes the topics are serious, but you can count on the episodes to be entertaining. Also, One Broken Mom is not offering any psychiatric or medical diagnosis. We're just here giving away useful and important information. So if you're ready to hear real talk by real people so that we can all get better together, then you're in the right place and welcome. All right, everybody, welcome back to the show. Let's jump right in today with a few statistics and some kind of a data nerd and I love to have numbers here. Um, and so these data, uh, the data that I'm about ready to share from you is actually taken from the Center for Disease Control and Prevention and they have a report that they do which is called Data and Statistics and it's the Fatal Injury Report for 2018. And this is current as of March 1st of 2020. The age adjusted rate of suicide in 2018 was 14.2 per 100,000 individuals, making it the 10th leading cause of death in the US. However, when we look at the breakdowns by age, the suicide rates are highest in older adults. And I've air quoted that because I don't wanna think of myself as an older adult, but I actually do fall into this category. And it rises up to 20 suicides for every 100,000 people. Now, in 2018, how that translates into actual more numbers is that 48,344 Americans died by suicide. That is then an average of 132 suicides per day. And that is higher than homicides in the United States. And I always point that out, and you'll hear me say that many times. And that's double the homicide rate. So yes, you are twice as likely to know someone who will die by their own hands than be murdered. And that's not always been the case. In fact, if you're looking at trends starting back in 1980 for causes of death, homicide remained steady or declined over those years, but suicide rates have doubled. And so I'm going to continue. In 2018, 1.4 million men, women, and children attempted suicide. Sadly, a variety of research studies indicate that women actually attempt to die by suicide more than men, maybe as much as two times. Now, what does that number mean? Well, let's go back to the CDC again, and we're going to review their death reports. And yes, there are death reports out there. In 2017, a total of 2.8 million deaths were recorded in the United States. That's from everything, including diseases, accidents, murders, and suicide. So let's think about that. If all 1.4 million men, women, and children who tried to die by suicide were successful, which is a terrible word, by the way, used in this context, our death numbers would go up by that much to roughly 4.2 million deaths per year. And it would dwarf the leading cause of death in the U.S., which is heart disease, which, by the way, is accountable for only 650,000 deaths of the 2.8 million in 2017, which is about 23%. Suicide would become the single leading cause of death in the U.S. by over two times and would represent one out of every three deaths in the United States if everyone who tried to die at their own hands had been able to do that. Unfortunately, when it comes to dying by suicide, men are nailing it. The rate of suicide is highest in middle-aged white men. 
And in 2018, men died by suicide at 3.5 times more often than women. And white males account for 70% of suicide deaths in 2018. But these aren't numbers. These are people. These are humans with stories and families all left behind. Some people are able to overcome that overwhelming urge to end it all, but others are only able to put it off for some time until they simply can't hang on anymore. And when you hear of some of the other interviewers that I've done here on the show, it seems like either the switch gets completely flipped or they have simply just taken their finger off of it for a moment, but they still keep their hand hovering over the top of it. There is so much work to do in this field every day, and one of the, those things is to talk openly about suicide, to raise awareness of just how much is really going on in our world and communities around us, so that we can do work early in, with those who are at risk and hopefully stop this very concerning trend of people dying at their own hands more and more and more each year. And so today I have with me Michelle Anhong to share with me her story behind the statistics. So welcome to the show, Michelle. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So we're chatting on a Saturday, and so I'm going to kind of shift gears a little bit because that was a little deep and a little heavy right there at the beginning. Um, and it's 2020, and normally that wouldn't matter to mention what year we're having our conversation, except for the fact that it's 2020. And so as we're doing this interview over the weekend, it's because this week you had to send one of your kids off to college. And so how was that, given the current situation um, and the climate that we have, to, to send a child off into the world, into the, you know, into university? Yeah, it, it was interesting. Um, yeah, I uh, moved him in yesterday into his residence and everybody was masked and there were people chasing us around with sanitizers, wiping everything down. And, you know, and we're, you know, basically the conversation in the car is like, so how soon do you think it'll be before I have to come back and pick you up because they've, they've closed it down for the next wave? Um, you know, it's not even an if, it's a when. So um, pretty sobering, pretty, pretty sad. It's, um, you know, I, I feel sad that this is his first year. I mean, his and last year of high school as a senior was, you know, just halted. Mm -hmm. He didn't have prom. He didn't have graduation. He, you know, didn't get to spend the last few months with his friends. And even, you know, now, like, I mean, I'm here in Canada and we've opened things up quite a bit, but even still just like, you know, limiting numbers, having to be outside, things like that. And so, you know, while I wanted him to have that first year of university in residence and, and have that experience, I don't know what it's going to look like. I mean, I don't, I don't think they're even allowed to have visitors. They're at half capacity. Um, but, you know, it's, um, it's life and it's life right now. And I, you know, don't believe in, in, stopping things you know and putting a halt just you know it's like just keep going and we'll make do and have as much fun as you can like this is your first year like go out and live so yeah so yeah. he's doing that and then didn't you say there's another one packing the car right now yeah there's another one my older <laughs> one who's now going into his fourth year and yeah I mean he's he's got his own apartment and he's going to be doing all his classes online but it was like yep no, I mean, we, you know, the quarantine was, was pretty tough. I actually, um, I had downsized um, a few months ago thinking, okay, well, I'll be empty nesting. And so I don't need all this space, not knowing that suddenly we're all going to be on top of each other. <laughs> so yeah, now I'm, I was at the point of like, you have, you just have to go, <laughs> like, please, <laughs> please give me room. <laughs> yes, yeah. 
yeah yeah well my uh my oldest is a is a senior he's got another mm. semester left to be able to go and uh but a lot of his friends actually you know um they same thing like you know the whole senior year just kind of got you know upended yeah. for everybody and it was you know heartbreaking um, to watch that. And then I started to think about this year, like what if I was a senior coming into this year? Cause I was really active in sports and in particular in track and field when I was in high school and my senior year in high school, we had a measles outbreak in Kansas. So I'm from, from Kansas. And as a result, um, and it started around our area where we lived, the town that I was from, my school was banned from going to a lot of track meets and events because, I, you know, they didn't want us showing up with the measles. I mean, nobody had it, but it, that was a response, yeah. like, and I'm going to go back to, this is 1990, so we're back like 30 years dear God, um, 30 years ago when that happened. And it was a bummer as a senior, like wanting to go out on the track and wanting to be able to, you know, win a few championships or back to back them with ones that I had and not being able to do that. And so thinking about all the seniors starting this year that, you know, you know, that's supposed to be their capstone to their high school, you know, experience and having that, like, it's, it's bad to not be able to graduate and then it's bad to start a year and never get any of it, you know, that some of these kids are, are handling and dealing with like, you know, the senior trips that didn't happen and, you know, some of that stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so if we go back to the top here and we go back through those numbers and I read through some of those statistics and, you know, you're out of Canada, but you know, we've North America, you know, here, yeah. uh, what comes to your mind when you see the overwhelming facts that men are disproportionately affected by suicide, you know, um, <laughs> so many feelings, <laughs> um, more feelings than thoughts even, you know, as, I mean, first, first of all, just so much sadness. Like I was listening and I'm like, I'm just like feeling like I want to cry, even though I know what the numbers are, but just, you know, hearing it again and again, and it's like, and the numbers are not changing and so much disappointment that we're not doing more to change this, even though we know the statistics are so high, you know, and, and with respect to men, it's just, you know, I, I speak so much about, um, you know, the idea that our society is so built around this idea of being busy and being stressed. And we almost wear it as a badge of armor and, you know, we're not recognizing these are costing lives. Like, yeah, well, we have to stop that. You know, it's, uh, yeah, I say like this whole concept and so many of the concepts around, you know, mental illness and suicide, you know, I feel like they, they developed at the time when it's like, you know, children should be seen and not heard. And somehow we've able, been able to come out of that story, but this one we're not able to, you know, we haven't been able to get out of yet. And it's like, and it's, it, it angers me too. It's just like, I want to shake everybody and say like, wake up. Don't you see what this is costing us? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. It is, you know, um, part of that, I think, too, um, you know, is everybody kind of knows in this field. And it's been changing over the last few years, which is, you know, when people die by suicide, it's not covered on the media. You know, they don't talk about it because yeah. the concern that it can actually, um, people will copy or imitate that and they don't want to glorify it, right? And again, you know, putting the air quotes around a lot of words that are terrible words for this conversation, but they are the words. Um, And so, you know, when it's not out there in numbers and people aren't communicating about it, it doesn't feel like it's really that big of a deal. Like, you know, we see lots of stories on heart disease and cancer, you know, and murder, right? So we think that those are our enemies out there. But the reality is, is that those numbers tell us a totally different thing, that the enemy is, is even worse than what we even think about, you know? Yeah. Um, 
so, so let's talk about why you and I are sitting here looking at each other on a Saturday morning in 2020. <laughs> um, you know, who's your human in those numbers? My human was my husband. He, um, he died by suicide 14 years ago. He had just turned 35. Um, he had been suffering from bipolar disorder in a form of schizophrenia that we had only had diagnosed a couple of years earlier. Um, you know, I, I, I believe, and of course, like I have no way to ask him, but um, I think for, you know, it had developed years earlier. I, I do know that there were little signs, but he also tried so hard to cover it up and did his best um, as long as he could until, until he couldn't function anymore. And um, so we had the diagnosis and then, you know, the next couple of years were, were really tough for him. He had to stop working because, you know, he couldn't get out of bed for days or he was having manic episodes. Just he, he was cycling quicker and quicker. Um, I didn't even know about the schizophrenic piece that he had voices in his head until very close to the end of his life. Um, yeah. Yeah. And um, you know, and he, you know, they, they, the sad thing with, with mental illness too, is that, you know, there's no quick fix like, Oh, this is what you have. Let's, you know, like, yes, they have medication, but it's also, we don't really know which medication or medications because usually it's a cocktail will work. So, you're going to be a bit of a lab rat for a while and we're going to try a whole bunch of different things and see what they do. And we'll deal with the side effects, which were not fun either. And so, you know, he did that for a while, but he just completely lost hope. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, he, yeah, he, when, when he passed, um, he, you know, he never once spoke about, wanting to die. I, you know, I was watching him deteriorate thinking he might accidentally hurt himself, but I never thought it was, in, it was going to happen intentionally. But by the end, you know, he, he was sharing with me, he was losing hope. He was sick of, you know, you know, I, he was taking, I think 17 different pills a day. Um, you know, it, based on, you know, the, there was the antipsychotics, the antidepressants, then all the different pills to counter the side effects of them. And it, they weren't helping him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, it was sad. Yeah. Can you actually go go back and help for any of the listeners that are not familiar with bipolar disorder and schizophrenia? Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, because I, sometimes I take for granted that we throw out words like this on this episode, and then I'm like, somebody might not actually know what that is, you know, and what that looks like in a relationship. Because what you're talking about is something that wasn't diagnosed early on, you know, and some people that are on the show, you know, have found or discovered, you know, that they are uh, challenged with a couple of, uh, you know, diagnoses early enough in life, but you're talking about something that didn't like materialize until his thirties. Um, but what did it look like? What, you know, what did the bipolar disorder look like in your day-to-day -day life? And what did the schizophrenia look like for mm -hmm. people to be educated on what that, what that condition and how it presents? Sure. So, so I know that they do present differently for different people. Mm -hmm. um, but overall, bipolar disorder um, is, is, you know, swinging from having depressive episodes where he, you know, my husband, I can share what my husband's experience mm -hmm. was of, you know, he would be in bed for days, no energy, feeling low, just sleeping all the time, very down on himself, down on life. 
and then swim, swing to the complete opposite extreme where he was, felt like he was invincible and he was full of energy. And, you know, it was, it was almost exaggerated. Like it was just like, I can conquer the world. I can do anything. And, and he wouldn't sleep for days. And so, you know, and then it, it's going through these cycles, um, which as he was deteriorating, you know, usually I believe it starts out where the, the cycles um, between the two different um, spectrums are further apart. And that's why it was hard for us to diagnose and, and notice it because he might feel down, but if he was pushing himself, then I wouldn't see it. Or, you know, he could be feeling happy and it's like, oh, great, you're doing well. And um, so, you know, it was, it was hard to see until it started speeding up. And then it was quite apparent. Um, and, and he was pushing through it all until he reached a point that he couldn't. And that's when, when he did go to the doctor and he had the diagnosis. Um, and then at that point, he finally was just like, I feel like that gave him the permission of like, okay, I need to stop working because like, yeah, there really is something wrong with me. It's not just me feeling down on myself about whatever's going on in my life. Like there's a clinical reason for this and then the the schizophrenic part i i think it's called schizo schizoaffective disorder um which is the same the bipolar like the swinging from depression to mania um and includes hearing voices and you know as i mentioned i didn't even know that was happening for him until very close to the end of his life mm. Was there any history of mental illness uh, in his family, of any other family members that had similar episodes? So he was adopted, and oh. so we didn't have that information. Um, we actually, um, I had to wait until my older son was 18 to be able to get the adoption records to see what was going on. Um, it wasn't clear, but looking at, at the history, it made, it made sense. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, but we had to wait, yeah, I mean, my, my older son was seven. My younger one was four when my husband passed away. So yeah, we had to wait 11 years to be able to find that out. So it was pretty stressful because I, I know that they're genetic. And so just, you know, watching my kids like a hawk of like, are they showing any signs? Yeah. And just yeah. not knowing. Yeah. Gosh, I mean, and that's just, that's a lot to unpack right there. Like, you know, the mom alarms just go off in my own head too, you know, to find out something like that because you know some of the mental health things that we talk about on the show some of them are you know the the nature um and some of them are the nurture right yeah. and then um and you know and ideally you know it's awesome if we can get on top of the ones that come from our background and our experiences and we can start to do our work on ourselves in order to be able to heal repair rebuild and, and move on but then there's this whole other level of frighteningness terror you know i can even use that that I, I, I have to, like, I could see myself experiencing, and I'm not sure this is what your husband did, but, um, or you did, but if I found that, you know, the things that were going on inside of me may not be things that I ultimately can truly fix, that would feel pretty overwhelming to me. And then on top of that, the um, idea of, did I just give this to my own children? Like that, like that's a heart sick feeling right there. Right. Like, yeah, that's tough. That, that right there, <laughs> not dealing with the effects of everything else that you've already been dealing with, but that right there yeah. slows me down. Like in my thought, like my thought exercise of going through that. 
Yeah, it's it's terrifying because I've got um, I have my own mental health challenges, and um, you know, mental illness runs in my family too. And it's like, oh my god, both both sides have it, and and yeah, that um, that was very scary, and it kind of. Uh, and I know I'm, I'm jumping ahead a bit, but um, I, um, after my husband passed away that I became so laser focused on my kids. Cause it was like, okay, they just went through this. The statistics are stacked against them, you know, like genetically having experienced their dad die when they were so young, having a single mom, like being raised by a single mom and just on and on and on. I was like, I was yeah, watched over them like a hawk. Anytime there was any inkling of anything, I'd be rushing to get them assessed. (laughs) Right. It was was terrifying. It was just like, I have one chance to do this right. So I better do that. And, and, you know, just this pressure I put on myself on top of everything else of, you know, just like, I I don't want to screw up my kids anymore than I already might have. And, and I know, like, I think we all screw our kids up in some way or another. Yeah. And, I have a know. whole show about that. So. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Whole yeah, show. So, <laughs> so that, that's my personal version of what that looks like. Yeah, yeah. And it's understandable, though. I mean, you know, sometimes, like I said, my impetus for beginning here was my kids. Like, it was, I need to begin to fix me right now because the 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 train has left the station with my kids and I need to get on top of that. Like if I can go back and undo what's already happened, I need to I need to start working on that. And then I want to make sure that the you know the course correction happens to get to drive them away from what their future could have possibly been had I not done anything. And and then you're yeah, it's like your your hands are on the steering wheel with a death grip of like keep a turn right, keep a turn right, keep a turn right. You know, don't let it go back to left again. Um, so I, yeah, I can, I can see and, and feel, you know, that and, and understand all of that. Now, what's interesting about your story, again, terrible word, shitty word for what we're talking about here, but it is, it's an, it's an important fact of your story. Let me do that. Is that after your husband died, you guys didn't tell anybody that it was by suicide. So you want to talk about what the decision was behind to do that? My husband and I actually grew up together. We were both part of a community that, just didn't talk about mental health issues, definitely did not talk about suicide. And so during my husband's illness, um, we didn't tell anybody he was sick. The, the immediate family knew, there were a few close friends that knew, and that was it. Um, I know he felt a lot of shame around it, particularly when he stopped working. It, you know, it impacted his sense of self and you know, who, who he was as a husband and a dad. And um, so he really didn't want anyone to know. And then when he passed away, um, as the family was gathering, you know, one of them turned to me and said, what are we going to tell people? And you know, initially it's like, uh, what? And then of course I start thinking about, oh yeah, what are we gonna tell people? Because I don't know how to wrap my head around any piece of this, um, you know, nobody knew he was sick there, you know, now he's gone. I, what do I tell my kids? And then even more that sense of guilt and wondering, did I do enough? Is this somehow my fault? And so I was, you know, when they said, why don't we say it was an accident? I was like, oh yeah, let's do that. Because, you know, this was within hours and I had not wrapped my head around any of it. And, um, you know, then we just started telling, you know, we we told the rest of the family, this is what we're doing. And, you know, the, the close friends that were also gathered there and every single person was like, 
oh yeah, of course. <laughs> you know, nobody said maybe that's not a good idea. And not that I'm putting the blame out there, but it was just kind of this, like, you know, we were all colluding on this and, um, and that's just how it went. And then you carry this, you know, I carried this with me and it's like, you know, the longer you tell it, the harder it is to then backtrack and say, Oh, and by the way, you know, just kidding. Like, that's actually not what happened. Like, you know, and, and it just got harder and harder and harder um, to, to get to the truth. But it just, you know, I kind of built my life around that lie from that point. Mm -hmm. That's, uh, you know, and that's, I think people can sympathize, you know, with that and, and that, that choice, that decision. Um, and, and, you know, and if anybody who can't, you have no right to sit in judgment, you know, of anybody who, who decides to do that. I mean, I, I sit there and I listen to this and, you know, how long had it been before his death that the diagnosis and all of this earth changing, you know, shattering news came in? I mean, you said like a couple of years. It was, a, it was about two and a half years. Yeah. I mean, that's, you're spinning still just from, you know, from that, like two years goes by in a flash, you know, yeah. um, unless it's 2020, then it takes like 10 years. But, um, Anyways, you know, so that's like, you're, you're trying to grapple with that. I mean, things were coming at you so quickly that I can, I can understand that. It is interesting, however, that everybody colluded in on it and that nobody yeah. had brought anything like that up. What, did everybody else, I, you know, I, you can't answer for everybody else, but what were some of the thoughts you think behind other people kind of going along? It was a support. Did they also feel that you don't talk about stuff like this out in public in the open? I mean, was it to protect your husband? You know, what were some of the conversations that people had for supporting this decision to do this? So we actually had no conversations. It was very quickly swept under the rug. And this is, this is our story and we're sticking to it. Um, and, and I'm going to say yes to all your reasons. I think, I think it was a little bit of all of that. And, um, you know, it just, it was, you know, just seemed like the easiest thing to do, which, you know, I then realized was actually the hardest thing to do. But, you know, at the time, you know, I know, especially like, you know, I hadn't even told my kids at that point. And it was, and, you know, I, as I mentioned, they, they were seven and four. And it was like, how on earth do I tell my kids that their dad died by suicide? You know, I'm, I'm wondering what I might've done wrong, or I'm wondering what I might not have done enough of like did I even did I love him enough did I you know like mm -hmm. did I, I did I micromanage his medication and it was all of that and it's like well how do you tell these little kids and what kind of burden is that going to put on them you know that to think like you know oh maybe maybe my daddy left you know because of me because kids internalize these things oh totally yep they so, do everything's personal to them like did they make yeah. him mad did they you know I, you know, that's, that's, that's terrible. Did you end up going down like right after his death? Um, did you enlist the help of mental health professionals into part of this grieving and understanding process? You know, yes. and, were, and, and was it truthful? Like, I mean, when you got into the room, did you talk about what really happened? <laughs> yeah. So, so in my own therapy, yes, I did. Um, but with my kids therapy, no, it was an accident. And my kids, um, did, I think, they, I think there's, um, there's a process of making um, people wait three months until after the loss. I think that gives us time for the shock to wear off um, before um, my kids could do any kind of therapy. Um, we tried one-on-one, -on -one, but you, you can't get 
preschoolers to do one-on-one -on -one therapy. They were climbing all over the furniture and under the chairs and running mm -hmm. around and screaming and <laughs> literally jumping around the office. And, you know, and so I, I did find a group for, for bereaved children um, that was fantastic. They did art therapy, play therapy, um, you know, it was the parents got to hang out, you know, it was, it was in this little house and the parents got to hang out upstairs and just cry and vent and talk about like, oh, we're all single now. What on earth do we do with that? And while the kids did their stuff and, you know, we had no idea what they were doing down there. And, and that was kind of a relief too, because it was like, okay, they're in good hands. And now we have some time for ourselves and just to express, but in that group, I didn't share the truth either. Everybody, you know, so I was living a, a double life. Mm -hmm. And so how long did you do this, that his suicide was actually a secret from, from everyone? Close to 11 years. Oh my gosh. Yeah. 11 years. I just got goosebumps thinking about that. Yeah. I, I, man. Hell of a long time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so then were you the one that just said enough is enough? We've got like, I've got to, you know, I've got to come forward with this. I've got to like acknowledge that this is, you know, what happened. Yes. Yeah. And, and how did, it, how did the, you know, the cobble that you had, you know, that had formed around this, how did, how did everybody else take it? Um, I think they were still kind of in denial and I, and I, I kind of did it slowly and in steps. Um, but I don't think, you know, I think the same way they kind of didn't fully acknowledge the suicide and what was really happening with him. Because I, I know that there are and were family members that just couldn't wrap their head around what was really going on with him. Even though they knew, I don't know that they had the understanding, particularly older generations that just don't understand mental illness. And, you know, it, it was tough to wrap their heads around it. And then for me to say that, I, I think it was just kind of like, oh, okay. And then like, let's just put that back under the rug where it belongs. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. uh, and, and that's kind of how it stayed. Mm -hmm. Which is again, why we're talking here because, mm -hmm. it, you know, 11 years of keeping that to yourself, you know, and is that how long it took before you said something to your kids about it? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So your kids were teenagers yeah, um, they were 15 and 18 when I told okay. them. Okay. And so this happened only three years ago for you. Like timeline wise, you're talking about your husband's death was 14 years ago. And so this is um, still, we're back into you going through this, some fresh stuff right now. Right. Oh yeah. 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 So what do you think when you look back on 11 years of not talking about it and not kind of feeling it in its full form? you know, everything there. What the, what did that do to you? I mean, now that you can look back yeah. and, and see. Well, it, 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 I was destroying myself. Uh, that's, that's the best way I could put it. it. It was destroying me. It impacted my mental health. It impacted my physical health. Um, when we, you know, don't let ourselves feel uh, the emotions that are coming up for ourselves and we shove them down, they don't go away. They don't disappear. They, they get stuffed. They impact our, our physical health. Um, I developed depression from hiding the truth. I developed anxiety of, you know, spending every day worrying who's going to find out and who might my kids find out accidentally and how might that happen? And, you know, also just worrying about their own health and, um, so I, you know, it was like, we talk about the elephant in the room Well, I was just carrying that elephant around with me everywhere. And, you know, it was a very heavy weight and, 
you know, I designed my whole life around, well, there's this elephant here that's sitting on my lap. And so you're going to have to stay very far away because it's quite a large elephant and isolating myself, you know, to a certain extent. And, you know, I was extremely unhealthy at that point, you know, mentally also just having this made this choice. Um, you know, they say secrets make us sick. And, mm -hmm. and that's really, that's how I see myself. And, that's what guided that sickness guided every choice that I made in my life at that point. It was, you know, all about feeling like I didn't deserve more for mm -hmm. myself that I should just um, be grateful for whatever came my way and whatever was happening to me because, well, I, you know, I, I internalized so much of it myself and, you know, and this idea of like, you know, I should be grateful because I knew somewhere deep down that like, yeah, this is not right, but I also didn't know how, how to fix it. And I don't know that I was even ready to for, for a good amount of time. Mm -hmm. Did the shame from, you know, the, the guilt from the beginning excuse me, sorry, everybody, everyone's going to clear my throat. Um, did the, the, that some of that early stage guilt and shame that you felt of like, man, did I not do enough? You know, did I, you know, am I somehow responsible, you know, in some way, did that dissipate and, you know, and change over 11 years or did it just get added on? Like I, you know, I can see like myself, like, it, you know, the guilt just changes. It goes from one to the other, which is now I feel guilty that I'm not being honest with myself and with people and, and, and everything. So you never really kind of un, unbind yourself from guilt and shame throughout that whole yeah. time. Yeah. Um, the guilt piece I was able to work through, um, I think with, within the first few months to a year, I was doing intense therapy at that time. And, and really just, you know, talking to my therapist and like, what about this? And should I have done that? And, and then at one point she was just like, Michelle, you're not God. Like if somebody wants to die, they're going to die. Mm -hmm. You know, he was 35 years old. He made this choice, you know, whether from a healthy brain or, or, or from a sick uh, place, but we can't stop that from happening. And it was like, oh, oh yeah, you're right. Like it gave me some good perspective there that I was able to, you know, and I, I clearly I've hung on to that mm -hmm. <laughs> for dear life yeah. for a long time. But the shame piece um, was something that I was already carrying before I came from a very shame driven home growing up. And so it was like, you know, I, I, I speak about it as like my backpack of shame. And it was mm -hmm. like, I just carry it around. And like, if anybody else wants to give me their shame here, I've, I've got room. Yep. Tuck <laughs> it right in and carry it with you. Yeah. I'll carry that. Yeah. No worries. Yeah. Like I've got it. So, so the shame piece was really the work that took me the 11 years to, to work through of just recognizing, you know, and that had to do with going back and doing like childhood work of just mm -hmm. recognizing that, you know, the shame that, you know, my parents, you know, the things that they put on me and the stories that I got from there were not true. And that that, that was coming from unhealthy people. And I didn't need to adopt it. I did because that's what kids do. And then the, the self-compassion and the forgiveness of like, okay, that's what children do. And that's why I did it. And now, now I know differently. So I'm putting that damn backpack down <laughs> mm -hmm. here, take it back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you know, like I said, that's, you know, that's the, the theme throughout everything that I've been doing on the show for a couple of years, which is, uh, you know, again, it, it's not a parenting show in the sense that you have to be parents to watch it, but that we had those parents and, and yeah. we have to travel back sometimes to, to go through that and to understand that. Um, did, so 
when you told your sons the truth about their father's death, did, was that the first time they heard about his mental illness? Yes. Wow. Yeah. So how does, how does a couple of teenagers take the news of that? Um, they, they were amazing about it. Um, thankfully they, you know, I, you know, when I told them, I was just very matter of fact. And I was like, listen, this happened. I wish I had done it differently. And I didn't. And I, I want you to know the truth now. You know, I, I had always wanted them at some point to know the truth. And I, I thought, you know, in my head, I was like, when they're parents and they understand why we make these choices for our kids, then they'll get it and they'll forgive me. But, but it was terrifying. And, but thankfully, you know, they, they are both pretty emotionally evolved and they understand the families, you know, his family and my family that, you know, both had these elements. And so they got like why that choice happened. Um, they said that they wished they had known from the beginning, but you know, it was like, okay, at this point I'm, I'm only being truthful. And yeah, thankfully it, um, it was, it, it was good. And, and you, you had me think too, that, I never talked about his mental illness with the kids, but as they became teenagers, like, you know, he had, he had smoked two packs of cigarettes a day. He liked to drink. And so when my kids were, you know, well, my younger one was starting to get into the, you know, starting high school and in that stage. So I would say like, listen, you know, your dad, dad smoked two packs of cigarettes a day. Some people, you know, can have a cigarette once in a while and be fine. And other people have a cigarette and then they're smoking two packs a day. That was your dad. And mm -hmm. so you need to know that might be something you inherited. So just be aware mm -hmm. and be careful. So that's kind of how I danced around those conversations. <laughs> but yeah, way too much dancing, too much planning, too much strategizing and tiptoeing. And then it was like, here's everything. <laughs> like, I just need to be straight with you. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, the benefit though, you're talking about something that's really important for people to kind of see like how, how powerful it is to be a generation breaker. And, you know, when, when one person is able to just stand, you know, right in their path and look back and understand, and then how they move forward, that does have an impact on your kids, like right away, right? Like oh, yeah. to be able to have a conversation with your children about identity beliefs, you know, um, you know, what's good and bad emotional development, what's healthy, what's not healthy, even while you're in the middle of trying to figure it all out on your own, the conversations around it and the awareness levels, you know, with teenagers, I, I believe at that point will be life changing for them. Like that's that little nudge off the path that actually then magnifies over the course of their life in ways of not having that conversation at all. And, you know, it doesn't look like, you know, anything substantial is actually going on in the moment, but I have to believe in the fact that those little conversations are not little at all. They are huge yeah. conversations for yeah. kids. Um, and so, you know, you can't change what you didn't, you know, you can't change. Right. But yeah. you definitely uh, coming forward with them at this point in time, you know, definitely yeah. you know, makes a difference, you know, for them going forward. Yes, absolutely. And, and I also, the gift in it too, was re recognizing and learning from that, how evolved they actually were. Like when they were talking about things and, you know, they're very much about, you know, like when I would talk about other stuff, like from my upbringing that I'd feel shame about, they'd just be like, mom, just do you. And it's like, but I can't, <laughs> you know, and they'd be pushing me. And so, yeah, they've always been great cheerleaders. You know, they, they knew I was doing work on myself mm -hmm. with my childhood stuff. They didn't recognize with that, but yeah, it was just, you know, 
when, when they shared that with me, I was like, wow, like I have a lot I can learn from them too. And I, I have a very deep respect um, for teenagers these days too. They, they are super smart, super savvy. They, they know a lot of stuff that I think our generation doesn't want to deal with. They're out and they're talking about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and it makes you, um, you know, if you were to go back in time, in your own time, you know, machines to where we were, but if you watch our kids today and realize you can have conversations and that, that they can be insightful, that they are watching what you're doing, like what you're modeling there. And you think about like when we were teenagers back in the day, if our parents had talked to us that way, you actually realize we aren't giving kids enough credit in terms of having these kinds of conversations with them, right? In fact, part of the stress and the strain I know I felt was having all of that kind of talking shut down, blocked away, ignored, disregarded because the parents around me couldn't do that. But when you show up as a parent, even if it's not happening perfectly, that you're able to do that, you're, you're, my kids blow my mind as well. Like they haven't had a perfect childhood. They had me as a mom for many years, not doing all of the good things in there. Yeah. And, but now to sit down there, you know, I had one conversation with my boy, like, three hours in the kitchen. And I was just like, dude, this guy is on it. And I, I got goosebumps thinking about how much better his future is going to be than what mine ever was because they watch, they see, and they actually do know more. And if you as a parent can have those conversations or yeah. try to have those conversations, I mean, it's just like, it's, it really is incredible. Yeah. And I, yeah. And we don't give kids, you know, like you said, we don't give kids enough credit for that, yeah. that they can actually do that. It's whether or not you are able to do it with them. Yes. If you're not, do your work, <laughs> you know? Right, right. Yeah. So, you know, being, um, you know, this might be a personal question or anything like that, but when you're carrying a big elephant around and you don't let people in too close, you know, it, did it affect your personal life, you know, in terms of whether or not you wanted relationships anymore or, you know, going down that pathway or anything like that? Yes, it did. Um, and I'm, I'm laughing. I'm not surprised. Because, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I'm going to ask the obvious. I'm going to be Captain Obvious oh, yeah. and ask no. that question. <laughs> and it's fine. And, and, you know, yeah, a hundred percent. Um, you know, I, I wanted a relationship again and, um, and no surprise, I attracted very unhealthy people because, you know, we attract who we are. They're, we're mirrors of each other. And so, yeah, like it might look different in them than it looked in me, but they had their own stuff that they were not dealing with. And, so yeah, we were not having healthy relationships at all. And, you know, I, I speak about how, you know, I, I turned 45 and I was in a relationship that was particularly unhealthy. It really, it was an exact replica of my childhood home. <laughs> so like, it brought everything up. And I am grateful for that because it gave me the opportunity to work through it. But I say it's one of my rock bottoms. <laughs> and, and that was really what drove me to say, like, I just can't do this anymore. Like, this is so painful. And, and you know, I was like, okay, I'm 45. I, I can't live the next half of my life this way. Like, this just hurts too damn much. And so that's, that's what drove me into therapy and you know, that, that relationship ended oh, almost four years ago. And I've only recently now having done all this work and, you know, moved through so much of it now saying, okay, I'm open to dating again. Like it took me that because I knew like until I did the work on myself and got myself to a certain place, I was just going to keep meeting the same guy with a different face and a different story, mm-hmm. but it was the same, it was the same situation over and over. So Yes. Now, now I'm seeing, okay, well, 
what what will it look like now? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I yeah. don't have the answer yet, but it's you know I'm cool to wait and see. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I and again, like I, I can sympathize with all of that there. And you know, you're right. You know, 45. When you actually again, when we go back to the numbers at the beginning, and we start seeing where the the incline in suicide rates rise, it is at this midlife point right? You, you know, you find yourself, some people find themselves going, I, the life is going to be different and I got to do it. I don't know what it's going to be, but you know, I can't do this, you know, another 45 years, you know, 30 years or whatever it is. And not surprising. That's when some people just pull the parachute cord and just bail, you know? Um, So there is, there is truth in all of that, that everybody's experiencing usually some sort of, you know, the midlife crisis, whatever you want to call it, but there's a real element there of where, we just can't emotionally and physically, you know, go on anymore. And, you know, when you also look at, um, you know, those death reports, if anybody's ever inclined to do some grim research, uh, dig them up, they're there. You know, that's also the break point that all of our health conditions start to take us down too, right? So the body is failing, the brain is failing, our emotional health is degrading and we hit just like a breaking point. And, you know, what's really beautiful um, is that, you can actually turn that direction completely around for yourself. Like you don't have to just let it go. And that's, you know, that's where you are today as a coach helping people about that. So let's, let's talk about now how this journey has led you to this place, you know, this waking up moment, I'm doing something different and I'm going to help other people do it. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, where are you at today with that? So, um, yeah, after doing lots, lots and lots of therapy and (laughs) I have to say like, you know, what I don't, I don't recommend what I did for everyone, like, you know, but I was very determined. So I was doing, you know, standard talk therapy. I was doing um, EMDR, which is trauma therapy. I was doing Rolfing, which is um, also trauma therapy, but it's really, it's somatic work. So it releases mm-hmm. the trauma from your body. I was doing it all at the same time. So I'd go to three different appointments a week and whatever was showing up and, you know, I'd go to the next appointment and talk about that. Very, very intense. But it also, I, I just knew, I was like, I'm going to do it all at once and, and just move, you know, move through this. Um, and so part of that was also um, beginning coaches training, which I am very grateful for a very close friend of mine for literally like shoving me into it. She was like, you need to do this course. She kept telling me she had just done coaches training. She was like, try it out. It's a weekend you know, you'll get good skills and, and just to like shut her up because I was so sick of hearing about it. Cause I didn't, I didn't even know what coaching was. I was like, what, I don't know what you want, but fine, I'll go like, just leave me alone. And like that just opened everything for me. And so yes, finally I found my people and people that were very heart centered and, and then slowly um, the story started coming out because I felt, felt safe with these people mm-hmm. and, you know, finished the coaches training and, um, had done a leadership program where I was really being encouraged to like, okay, it's time to time to come out with your story, time to tell the kids move past this. And so, um, yeah, eventually did, did tell the kids. And then I was doing a, um, I was working with a business coach at the same time when we were working on, you know, who you want to work with. And I was like, Oh, I want to empower women and, you know, to, you know, be their authentic selves and all all of the fun, good talk. Right. Yeah. Don't we all? Right. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And, uh, and it was funny because we were, we were sitting on on a zoom call, you know, with the grid, there were eight of us and and we're, I'm reading through like my ideal client worksheet. And it's all about women. There was one thing like, you know, what causes do you believe in? And I was like, you know, I'm big mental health advocate. And, and then the, the coach of this, she's like, whoa, whoa, hang on a second. Like, 
that just came out of nowhere. What's going on? And this actually had happened, I think, like two weeks after I told my kids. And I was like, oh, yeah, so here's what happened. And she's like, are you freaking kidding me? Like, hello? And I'm like, oh, my God. (laughs) I I needed her to point. And I was like, yes, that's that's who I want to work with. (laughs) But it was just so funny because I was still in, in, you know, the let's just keep dancing around what's really here. Let's dance around that elephant. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, from that moment, never turn back. Um, You know, I did now need to share with with the public what I was doing. So I had to put a a post on Facebook. I didn't have to, but I chose to. (laughs) I was like, you know what, hear it from me, everybody, hear it at once, hear it, you know. Here it is. And um, yeah, that's where I announced, you know, sorry to say this is what happened with my husband. This is why we kept it a secret. And I want to work with people who are, you know, in situations like I was in. So family members of people with severe mental illness or addictions um, that, you know, are, are on that roller coaster ride with their family member, because unfortunately it is a roller coaster when, when the family member is not doing well. Um, And then I also work with people who have um, mild um, anxiety, mild depression. They're usually working with someone else as well, Um, ADHD, but any kind of mental health challenge to um, to empower them. Because I know from my own experience too, like, you know, there's this, this idea of just, you know, okay, the medication should do it. And then it doesn't do it most of the time, like not alone. So I help people create the lifestyle changes that will help serve them and their mental and physical health, um, doing mindfulness and mind body connections so that they learn to recognize the symptoms, whether it's, you know, in their, you know, in thoughts or in their bodies early enough that hopefully they might be able to counter like the going into like that dark hole um, and, um, you know, believing that they, they have a part in their own health. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. It's funny how, um, again, another shitty word for the conversation, but it's interesting how, you know, sometimes these moments, you know, just rise up in us, you know, and we, I mean, it'd be great if you didn't have to lose your husband, you know, and go through everything that you did. Um, but then once you kind of tap into your true source in your flow, you know, then it's like, okay, this is, this is where I'm at. This is what I'm supposed to do. This is how I'm supposed to do it. And then, um, and then to be able to take that out and to be able to share that with, you know, with other people and to be able to guide them through that and, and go through that as, you know, I'm always grateful when I get to meet people like you that experience that flow change in their life. And because there are so many people you know, that need the help. And again, this is a movement to be able to give people the access to it. And it doesn't always happen the same for everybody and who we connect with and have some sense of safety with that we can talk about our experiences. You know, there's not enough people out there, I think, you know, coming forward with their stories and, you know, gathering their communities around them to be able to help and support them. And so the more people like what you're doing there that come forward um, with this, you know, this experience here is, is powerful. Um, and so, and it, it's no easy feat, you know, like uh, to know, to get to yourself to a, a place like that. Like I commend you for all the work. Um, I don't think some people really truly understand that when you really, really want to like swiftly change something and it's not swift, it feels swift, but it's really not swift. 
you got to dig in. I mean, yeah. there's some hard work and it's, it's not just going to an appointment once a week and finding that on your calendar. It's like that appointment has lead in emotions. It has the emotions of the appointment. And then you've got the recovery emotionally after that of like, what did I just unpack and where am I going with this? And, yeah. you know, like it's, it's yeah. tough. And some people don't, don't want to get there yet, but yeah. man, it's so rewarding. I mean, I just, yeah. it's unbelievable. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and it's those, those are the clients that come to me. It's the ones that are ready that are just like, I don't care what it takes. Let's do this. Because mm-hmm. they're, they're, you know, I think Elizabeth Gilbert says something about, you know, she doesn't know, uh, and I'm, I'm making a mess of this. I'm totally butchering it up. <laughs> something about, I, I, you know, I, I don't know a single person who's gone through a major transformation without getting tired of their own bullshit. Mm-hmm. And that's really where I was at. It was just like, okay, yeah, I'm sick of this. I'm done. There's, there's a new way and I'm ready. I'm ready for whatever it will take because I want whatever's on the other side. And, and there is, there is so much beauty and so much freedom on the other side. Like that's what I say. Like, you know, like just all the weight that I was able to let go of. I was like, oh, I didn't know life can be easy. Mm-hmm. Or it can be easier than the way I was living it. Like I yeah. was just used to living it for 45 years that way. And it was like, okay, life is supposed to be hard and challenging. And this is, you know, I should just accept my lot. And it's like, no, but I don't want to. Mm-hmm. And, and that refusal, yeah, has led to a very rewarding life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm glad to hear you say that. One thing that I've said before is that, you know, growth isn't when you accept who you are. It's when who you are becomes unacceptable. And then you just, you just go for it. And, um, and could you have imagined three, four years ago, you'd be sitting on a show and actually smiling and laughing every once in a while while talking about, you know, your husband's suicide? No. I mean, some of my best friends didn't even know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so no, definitely not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, and so that's encouraging, you know, that's encouraging. And I, again, I think people come into places like this, you know, listening to this show, seeking out, you know, opportunities to, to know that you, I mean, that it really can, you can't undo, you can unwind, you can, you can heal. It won't be easy, but it's somewhat simple, you know, it's just, it's, it's work to do. So um, as a coach, that means you're not a therapist um, and then you're based in Canada, but you're available throughout the world, North America. Throughout the world. Um, Throughout the it's world. funny because I actually was, was just talking to somebody yesterday and realized I actually only have three Canadian clients. <laughs> Everybody else is, is global and, yeah. and the majority are in the US. But yeah, I, I coach um, on Zoom. I've been using Zoom before the world knew about it. <laughs> <laughs> before it became the hip new thing to do. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I also do it on the phone for people that are not comfortable with Zoom and um, yeah, that's, you know, I mean, now it's so easy. We can be face-to-face having a great conversation. The intimacy is still there. The vulnerability is still there. And um, yeah, it's just open access for anybody. Cool. Well, it's good to hear. All the links to your um, site will be included in the podcast notes along with all your social links. But why don't you just tell everybody where everybody can like first reach out to you right now if they want to right after the show. Sure. Thank you. Um, so I have a website, which is michelleanhangcoaching.com. You can also find me on Facebook and Instagram as michelleanhangcoaching and LinkedIn too. <laughs> cool. So then I will note that I think I mispronounced your name despite practicing at the beginning of the interview, because I'm pretty sure I said Ann Hong, even though I did not want to do that. And again, it's a running joke when you have hard names like Ami Kwerkoni. 
it's all good it's actually it, it's it's a european name and so i'm not pronounced i'm pronouncing it the north american way but i think in german which is where it comes from it's anhang so oh. you did you did half right i'm doing it all wrong. <laughs> so there you go there you go <laughs> cool well michelle i appreciate you so much um just in general for what you do and everything that you've been through in your experiences and in, in helping people along and i appreciate you taking the time to meet with me get to know you know me getting to a chance to know you and hear your story and being on the show today so thank you so much for this thank you so much as well it's been a pleasure cool thank you for listening to one broken mom you can find podcast notes on my website at amiquiricone.com and there i'll provide all links to all of the resources that we mentioned on the episode also if you have any questions comments or ideas for other episodes feel free to send me an email and if you are interested in sponsoring the show i'd love to have you be a part of the team Finally, if you like what you hear, please share the podcast and leave a review so that others can find it. We are all here to get better together. I am the host, Ami Kurakoni, and as always, I am super grateful to have you as a listener. Until next time, have a great day.